Chapter 21 Organizational Management Section 21A Overview Introduction Organizational management is the process of organizing, planning, leading, and controlling resources within an entity with the overall aim of achieving its objectives. Organizational management provides leaders the ability to make decisions and resolve issues in order to be both effective and beneficial. This chapter will provide valuable information leaders need to effectively manage their organizations. This chapter will cover organizational design, managing organizational change, conflict, problem solving, and project management. Section 21b Organizational Design Introduction What do you think of when you hear the term organizational design? Do you think of your organizational chart? Most people do, but that is only a portion of your organization's design. Organizational design is the process of selecting a formal system of communication, coordination, controls, authority, and assigned responsibilities necessary to achieve the organization's goals. As leaders, we need to understand how to select appropriate organizational designs that facilitate mission accomplishment. To this end, this reading will address how effective organizational design not only facilitates mission accomplishment, but also enhances productivity of an organization. First, we will discuss factors leaders should consider when designing their organizations. Then we will look at four organizational systems or designs and discuss the organizational factors which determine which design is most appropriate for a given organization. Before we can talk about the different designs, we need to look at what influences or factors affect our design choice. Design Factors There are many factors that influence how we set up our organizations. The first is organizational strategy, goals. Professor of Organizational Behavior Dr. Stefan Robbins states, quote, An organization's strategy is a means to help management achieve its objectives. Since objectives are derived from the organization's overall strategy, it is only logical that strategy and structure should be linked. More specifically, structure should follow strategy. End quote. Robbins, 569. What Dr. Robbins suggests is we need to identify why we are doing, what we are doing, how we expect to get there, strategy, and then design our organizations to accomplish that strategy. Why does your organization exist? What are your goals? Does your mission require creativity or control? Do you need to be effective or efficient? Answers to these questions give us a starting point in determining which design the organization should use. Nevertheless, we must consider a few other factors. Another design factor is the environment. When we speak of the environment, we are not talking about the climate or the physical environment. We are talking about what outside forces affect the organization's processes. Are we dependent on other organizations or sections to do our jobs? Is the environment constantly in a state of flux? Are we continually changing or do we do the same processes repeatedly? Professor Richard Daft, author of Organizational Theory and Design, calls this the stable-unstable dimension. Quote, an environment's domain is stable if it remains the same over a period of months or years. Under unstable conditions, environmental elements shift abruptly. End quote. 
Daft 148. If our routine is unstable, this means the environment is constantly changing, which requires flexibility. If you can set your watch by it, as the cliche goes, then it is stable and allows stricter control. Don't be fooled into thinking that once you identify your environment as stable, it remains that way. It does not. We need to continually scan our environment to identify outside changes that affect our design. Certainly, you can see that the environment helps us determine which design is most appropriate for our organization. Just like goals, the environment works with other factors as well. The third factor to consider is the size of your organization. Early in your career, you learn the term span of control. There are only so many people one person can effectively manage. Once you reach a point where you lose effectiveness, new levels of management must be developed and more structure introduced. Let's assume your whole organization is a five-person shop. How many levels of supervision would you need? Probably one. Now add two more workers. Do supervision levels increase? No. How about adding 10, 20, or 100 people? Maybe as the organization grows, so should the level of supervision. There comes a point where your structure becomes so rigid that more workers would require few, if any, additional levels of supervision. The last factor we will discuss is technology. According to Professor Daft, technology refers to the work processes, techniques, machines, and actions used to transform organizational inputs, that's materials, information, ideas, into outputs, that's products and services. Daft 266. We need to look at what resources we use to accomplish our mission to also help determine the best design for our organizations. If we primarily use new equipment with unknown procedures or outcomes, we would need fewer controls and more flexibility than if we use equipment that is old with known procedures and outcomes. In other words, if the equipment you use is old and well-known, more structure could be utilized. If the equipment you use is newer, the outcomes or problems you may encounter require flexibility. These four factors, strategy, environment, size, and technology, all influence how we should design our organization. Let's shift our attention to four organizational systems or designs we can use to improve unit effectiveness. Designs. The first design we will discuss is the mechanistic design. Sometimes referred to as the bureaucratic structure, it is vertically structured. Communication is basically up and down rather than lateral. As Dr. Robbins puts it, quote, the mechanistic model is synonymous with the bureaucracy in that it has extensive departmentalization, high formalization, a limited information network, mostly downward communication, and little participation by low-level members in decision-making, end quote. Robbins, 569. Departmentalization means grouping our work tasks by specialty. The more specialized the tasks, the more structure is used. By high formalization, we mean a heavy reliance on rules. Let's look at the mechanistic system in the context of the factors discussed earlier. The mechanistic system lends itself well to an organization where strategy or goals are geared toward efficiency Tasks need to be accomplished quickly and accurately. An environment which is quite stable requires little flexibility. 
Therefore, a rigid structure or mechanistic design should be used. If the size of the organization is intermediate to large, more structure is necessary. As discussed earlier, as organizations grow, new levels of supervision must be added to maintain control. Finally, technology is known. What we use to do our jobs is not new. We can predict day-to-day -day what will happen, and we have procedures to follow to accomplish our tasks. The mechanistic organization is very efficient and responds to decisions rapidly. Because of the vertical communication, procedures flow from top to bottom rather quickly. This is very effective for emergency services that rely on speed. The mechanistic design has disadvantages as well. Because of the reliance on rules, job satisfaction suffers because subordinates basically do as they are told with little to no discussion. Limited discussion also leads to a poor social or human relations environment as well. The organic design is just the opposite of the mechanistic. This design has horizontal specialization rather than vertical. According to Dr. Robbins, the organic system is, quote, flat, uses cross-hierarchical and cross-functional teams, has low formalization, possesses a comprehensive information network utilizing lateral and upward communication as well as downward, and it involves high participation in decision-making, end quote. Robbins, 569. Looking at an organizational chart, you would not see much difference between the mechanistic and the organic design. On the other hand, the interaction within the organization is quite different. The organic organization has extensive cross-communication. There is no clear line drawn for the communication path to follow. As workers need to communicate with others, they do so free of bureaucratic lines. The organic system allows joint decision-making and encourages subordinates to voice their opinions. Looking back at the factors, the organic organization's strategy is geared toward innovativeness and creativity. The computer software industry is a good example of one that requires a creative rather than a restrictive system. The environment is unstable, with change being the norm rather than the exception. Therefore, an organic system is needed. The size should be small to moderate because this type of organization requires loose rules. Technology is fairly new with outcomes that are unknown, requiring adaptation rather than compliance. The organic system lends itself well to research and development organizations that are creative rather than restrictive. The strengths of an organic organization lie within communication. The sharing of information and participative environment increase worker satisfaction and often produce well-rounded decisions. Unfortunately, the organic design's communication slows down the implementation process. This slow response leads to low efficiency. In addition, the organic organization's flexibility reduces standards. In other words, if the same task is performed every three months, they may be handled differently each time. There are very few organizations that are purely mechanistic or organic. For this reason, we have another design that incorporates the strengths of both, the diverse design. This design is used when the organization needs the rigid structure of the mechanistic organization for one section and the flexibility of the organic for another. For example, the administrative section has specific rules to follow when processing performance reports, decorations, and orders. For this purpose, they would require a mechanistic system. 
In the same organization, you may have a section that conducts training. The mechanistic system would hinder the creativity required for such a section, therefore, an organic system would be more effective. Because the organization uses both mechanistic and organic systems to accomplish the mission, the organizational design is considered diverse. The diverse organization incorporates the best of both designs to accomplish the mission. The last design we will look at is the matrix design. Basically, developing a matrix is teaming workers from different sections or organizations together to solve problems or serve a function. We do this quite often. The disaster preparedness section, mobility section, and process action teams are good examples of a matrix. The distinguishing factor in a matrix is the chain of command. In the matrix design, subordinates have two bosses. They have their functional boss, who writes their performance report and schedules normal duty hours, and the project boss, or team leader. The strength of the matrix design lies in the pooling of expertise and resources, and the weaknesses lie in the confusion of who is in charge, the functional or project boss. One note of caution, the matrix is not a design in itself. Basically, the matrix is a design within a design. In other words, an organization designed mechanistically that develops a process action team to work a project does not become a matrix. Actually, they are a mechanistic organization with a matrix. A matrix is usually short-lived, so the overall organizational structure remains intact. As managers in today's Air Force, your job is to ensure organizations are operating at peak performance. One way of accomplishing that responsibility is to set up organizations effectively. We need to look at our units from the standpoint of our organizational strategy, the environment or an outside influence on our organization, the size of our organization, and the technology or advances in the equipment we use day to day. Once we understand how these factors relate to our organization, we can decide what structure would best accomplish our mission. Is the organization geared toward the rigid mechanistic structure, the flexible organic structure, a combination, the diverse structure, or do we need to use specialized teams to solve a problem, as in the matrix structure? These are decisions made by the effective leader. By designing our organizations properly, we are designing the organization that will capitalize on strengths and minimize weaknesses. As you can see, organizational design goes much further than the organizational chart. Section 21C. Managing Organizational Change Introduction The British created a civil service job in 1803 requiring a man stand on the white cliffs of Dover with a spyglass. He was supposed to ring a bell if he saw Napoleon coming. Despite Napoleon's defeat in 1813, the job existed until 1945. What's wrong with this picture? The scenario illustrates an improvement, not to mention a significant cost-saving opportunity, that was ignored for over 130 years. We know change is inevitable. We know changes are taking place every day all around us. We know change is easy, right? Wrong! As the scenario above shows, change is not automatic and doesn't just happen. Change can be a complicated and often painful process. Senior enlisted leaders are in key positions to manage change. They have the authority and responsibility to lead and manage organizations, many years of experience, and technical proficiency. 
However, as leaders, they must also become proficient organizational change managers. This section explores the change process using the model proposed by renowned social psychologist Kurt Lewin, who recommended leaders view change as a three stage process unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. Stage 1 Unfreezing. Leaders begin organizational change by unfreezing, which means going where the hurt is, where people feel the pain of poor policies or systems. Organizational change is defined as the adoption of a new idea or behavior by an organization. DAFT 452. The establishment of new norms. These norms can be grouped in various categories, including technology, tasks, structure, and people norms. 1. Technology computers, test equipment, weapon systems, etc. 2. Tasks, general procedures, job steps, checklists, etc. 3. Structure, administrative procedures, evaluation systems, etc. And 4. People, technical or leadership training, new jobs, etc. Regardless of what specifically needs to change, the first step is to recognize the need for change, and this step is far from easy. Change is appropriate when there is a perceived gap between what the norms are and what they should be. This perception starts the momentum to begin unfreezing. Unfreezing is a deliberate management activity to prepare people for change. Leaders create an environment where people feel the need for change. This is often the most neglected yet essential part of unfreezing. A key factor in unfreezing involves making people knowledgeable about the importance of a change and how it will affect their jobs. Leaders must first generate a need in the people who will feel the greatest effect of the change. They do this by pointing out the problems or challenges with current operations. In many cases, people will want to stick to the old norms. The first reaction to change is usually resistance. Just as change is inevitable, so is resistance to change. An essential element for successful change is having a good plan. Planning enables the change agent to anticipate problems, develop courses of action, and deal with resistance. Resistance can take many forms. Four of the most common are Uncertainty When faced with impending change, people often experience fear of the unknown or see the change as a threat to their security. Can I do the new job? Can I operate the new equipment? Will I still have a job? Self-interest. People often consider the power they currently have or their role in the existing environment and question the possible loss of power after the change is implemented. Different perception slash no felt need to change. Even if you think people recognize the need for change, they may see the situation differently. Outwardly, they may support the change, but inwardly, they resist it. Overdetermination. Ironically, organization structure may be a barrier to change. For example, a mechanistic structure that relies on strict procedures and lines of authority may be so rigid that it inhibits change. When making change, success depends on managing and reducing resistance, and a change agent becomes vitally important. Leaders must accept the role of change agent in order to manage change. Senior enlisted leaders have vast influence on their subordinates, peers, and superiors. Commanders and directors often call upon senior non-commissioned officers to change an organization to make it happen. Here are five proven methods leaders employ to reduce and manage resistance to change. Education and communication. 
educating people about the need for and expected results of a change should reduce their resistance. Open communication is necessary throughout the change process and helps reduce uncertainty. Participation and involvement. Leaders reduce resistance by actively involving those affected in designing and implementing change. Involving people in the process may be time-consuming, but should help commit them to the new program. Facilitation and support. Introduce the change gradually, if possible. Provide additional training if needed. Reinforce and encourage people as much as possible. Remember the power of high expectations. Negotiation and agreement. Offer incentives to those who continue to resist the change. Negotiated agreements can help remind everyone of the changes they agreed upon should resistance return. Coercion. This technique involves using force to get people to accept change. This is a last resort because compulsion negatively affects attitudes and has long-term negative consequences. Coerced compliance requires constant leadership oversight to ensure the change remains in effect. There are usually many factors to consider, whether maintaining current norms, the status quo, or changing current norms. The change agent must analyze restraining, opposing, forces, and devise ways to reduce them to overcome resistance. At the same time, leaders must recognize and strengthen driving, supporting, forces, those forces pushing toward change. After analyzing the forces for and against change and developing a strategy to deal with them, leaders can attend to the change itself. Leaders improve the chance of success when they break the change into sequential steps. This approach provides visible success early, which may encourage people to support the rest of the change program. The unfreezing stage should be addressed whenever change is imminent. Careful planning is an essential element of unfreezing, improving chances of success and decreasing the likelihood of having to repeat the unfreezing stage. Your plan should include a set of evaluation standards to measure the degree of success or failure of the change. An evaluation with clear goals and objectives can help assess the success of change and help determine appropriate rewards when the change has been completed. Stage 2. Changing. This stage involves modifying technology, tasks, structure, or distribution of people. This is the movement from the old state, or the previous norms, to the new state. During the changing stage, the organization installs new equipment, restructures work centers, or implements a new performance appraisal system. In short, changing is anything that alters the status quo. Your role as a change agent in this stage is to monitor the change as it occurs and pay close attention to the people most affected by it. If you've implemented the change too early, you'll know it by watching the people's reactions. If some link in the system isn't ready to handle the change, production may bog down. A few irate callers from other branches or units will let you know in a hurry. In this stage, ensure the plan unfolds as intended. Even the best plans go awry for one reason or another. Remember the importance of you being involved as the change is implemented and be ready to deal with problems that may arise. Provide support at this stage. Some people may be traumatized by the actual implementation, so you should provide encouragement and advice as needed. The same techniques used to overcome resistance to change, paragraph 21.6.4, apply here too. Go back to the unfreezing stage if the change isn't going well. Going back or regrouping is better than pressing on with a change that causes more problems than it fixes. The change agent must decide whether and when to move forward. 
you must keep tabs on things or you won't be in a position to make this decision. Don't just plan to change. Flip the switch and let the chips fall where they may. Stage 3. Refreezing The final stage in the change process is refreezing. Just because you implemented a change and it appears to be going smoothly doesn't mean the job is done. You must lock in, or refreeze, the desired outcomes and the new norms so they become permanent. Without refreezing, people often return to the old ways. Consider an airman who completes seven skill level upgrade training and learns the proper way to perform key tasks in his or her work center. The proper way may differ from the way the work center completes the tasks. The airman may be inclined to conform to the old way rather than make waves. Old behaviors take over and nothing changes. Actively encouraging the use of new techniques and reinforcing them encourages others to use them, essentially freezing the new behavior. A critical step in refreezing is evaluating results. Did the change have the desired effect? If so, press on. If not, the new process may need more support, instruction, training time, etc. Having developed strategies to evaluate results in stage one of the change process, now is time to implement them. Positively reinforcing desired outcomes is crucial. Reward people when they do something right. This strengthens the correct behaviors and helps freeze them into place. In many cases, the change agent can call attention to the success of the change and show where it works. Highlighting successful change helps remove lingering resistance and prevents people from returning to the old ways of doing things. In some cases, even what appears to be successful change management fails in the end. Years ago, a company bought new computer equipment for the typing pool, replacing the old electric typewriters with word processing stations. The new technology included color monitors, advanced software, and high-speed printers. Everyone was carefully trained. The new equipment was installed for half the typists at first, then the other half got their new equipment, and the supervisors, change agents, provided support and encouragement all the way. Soon the section was turning out professional correspondence in half the time it previously took. Successful change, you say? Unfortunately, it wasn't. To cut down on the noise from the printers, portable dividers were installed between workstations. This isolated the typists from co-workers who used to be able to converse back and forth unimpeded. As a result, the previous social system, which was one of harmony, turned into one of unhappy isolation. Both the people and the work suffered, and the change plan had to be modified. Do you think the change agents anticipated this outcome and planned for it? Probably not, but they really weren't at fault. After all, no one can anticipate everything. The example serves to remind us of the importance of refreezing. The change agent must evaluate results, reinforce the desired outcomes, and make constructive modifications as needed. A change agent has a tough job. Carefully planning change, however, can make it as painless as possible. Managing change is one of the most important responsibilities you have. Using this three-stage process can help you manage the inevitable changes rather than letting the changes manage you. Section 21D, Conflict Management Introduction Conflict is inevitable in every organization and is often necessary to reach high levels of performance. Dr. Kenneth Thomas, author of Conflict and Conflict Management, The Handbook of Industrial and Organizational Psychology, 1976, defines conflict as the, quote, process that results when one person, or a group, 
perceives that another person or group is frustrating or about to frustrate an important concern. End quote. Conflict involves incompatible differences between parties that result in interference or opposition. Such differences can motivate for positive change or decrease productivity. Destructive versus Constructive Conflict Conflict can be constructive or destructive and becomes destructive when it results in barriers to cooperation and communication. This destroys morale and diverts energy away from important tasks and initiatives. On the other hand, conflict can be constructive when managed effectively. Positive conflict results in problem solutions, greater understanding, and enhanced communication between individuals or groups. In the past, managers were trained to avoid conflict because of its negative repercussions. This continues to challenge managers today as they work feverishly to avoid it altogether. However, managing conflict effectively offers benefits to the organization, like reducing organizational chaos and stimulating work activity and productivity. Therefore, to manage conflict successfully, we must first understand some of the sources of conflict. Sources of Conflict Many factors may result in or increase the probability of conflict within an organization. These factors manifest themselves in combination with other factors, making it potentially difficult to identify the specific source of the conflict. Many researchers, however, agree that conflict originates with one or more of the following stimulants. Communication Factors We often hear that many problems occur due to a failure in, or a lack of, communication. However, on closer examination, this usually accounts for a very small portion of the conflicts reported. The real crux of the problem is miscommunication. For example, when communication is misinterpreted, inaccurate, or incomplete. For personnel to perform at their very best, they need constructive, comprehensible, and accurate information. Anything less results in frustration, stress, and failure. Remember, conflict is defined as frustration of an important concern, whether real or perceived. Consider your organization and the conflicts that erupted because of poor communication. Now, consider what happens when the communication process fails altogether. Did the outcomes result in conflict? Structural factors. Size. Research shows that organizational size affects the people who work there. Like an elevator that reaches its maximum capacity, the larger the organization, the more people there is to cause and participate in conflict. With more personnel comes more opinions, perspectives, perceptions, etc. As a result, larger organizations may have unclear goals, more rigid structures, increased specialization, more levels of supervision, and increased opportunities for information to become distorted as it passes through each organizational echelon. Participation The more people interact and participate, the more noticeable their differences become. This can also lead to disputes and conflict, partly because, although people may attempt to participate, does not necessarily mean their ideas are heard or accepted. This rejection can spark frustration and conflict among members. However, this situation also has the potential to increase productivity if workers become more creative or competitive and search for better ways to enhance overall unit performance. This is productive conflict versus destructive conflict. 
We want people to challenge the status quo, to seek better ways to do business, and to continually improve processes. This supports our core value, excellence in all we do. Such efforts also support our service before self core value and that we must be willing to set aside old ways and personal differences in order to listen to the ideas of others to include our newest airmen. We must be willing to change, put self-interests aside, and do what is right for the Air Force. Line Staff Distinctions Diverse backgrounds and roles can create conflict. According to Dr. Thomas, this is very noticeable in the line and staff functions because the roles are so different. Overall, line personnel are concerned with production and are usually more loyal to the company. Staff functions usually involve creativity. Therefore, staff personnel are usually more critical of the organization. Moreover, since there are usually different requirements for staff and line functions, there are different types of backgrounds for each. These differences in values, training, background, etc. can lead to conflict. Consider how line and staff personnel view organizational goals. Line personnel normally are more concerned with the immediate or short-range goals, whereas staff personnel are more concerned with long-range or strategic goals. These differences in background and viewpoints can trigger conflict. Rewards Earning rewards involves a level of competition, which can lead to conflict. Healthy competition is not the problem. However, the individuals and groups who perceive that the rewards were given unfairly or in favor of someone else can often lead to conflict. For example, one person or department receives recognition that others feel they deserved but did not receive. Resource interdependence. Most likely, we have all had to compete for resources at one time or another. When people compete for scarce resources and each party feels they have a greater need, conflict may arise. Oftentimes, negotiations fail as each party assumes a directive or authoritarian position as they compete for the resource. Personal behavior factors. Conflict can arise because of individual differences such as goals and objectives, perceptions, values, and personalities. Three such differences in particular may facilitate behaviors that cause conflict. Values, perception, and personality. Values. Values are very important to people and will determine their behavior. When people's values are questioned, criticized, or opposed, conflict can result. Some values, such as religion and politics, seem to incite the biggest arguments and can lead to fights, but even less emotion-based values can cause conflict. For example, a worker who values high-quality work may see him or herself do a reward for the quality of the work. Conflict may occur if the unit emphasizes quantity over quality and rewards someone else instead. Perception Values also affect how people perceive situations and other people. If a person perceives others as lazy and incompetent, how he or she responds to that perception may cause problems. A person's perception of what constitutes fairness, quality of work, or constructive techniques can lead to conflict if these perceptions differ significantly from others or what the organization has defined for those factors. Personality We have all heard about people who couldn't get along because of a personality conflict, and this isn't uncommon. Put certain personalities together, and you are asking for conflict. Two personality types especially conflict-prone are the highly authoritarian individual and the low self-esteem individual. 
The highly authoritarian personality may antagonize coworkers by escalating otherwise trivial differences. The low self-esteem personality may feel threatened by others and therefore overreact. Either type of behavior can create interpersonal conflict in an organization. Five styles of conflict management. Now that we have an idea of what conflict is and what causes it, we can examine some ways to manage it. In the book, Conflict and Negotiation Processes in Organizations, Handbook of Industrial and Organizational Psychology, 1992, Dr. Thomas suggests five major conflict management styles, competing or forcing, collaborating, accommodating, avoiding, and compromising. Dr. Thomas uses a two-dimensional framework to compare these styles. The first dimension refers to the degree of cooperation a manager exhibits, measuring from uncooperative to cooperative. The second dimension measures assertiveness on a scale from non-assertive, passive, to assertive, active. Being cooperative refers to how willing a person or group is to satisfy the other's needs. For example, if person A gives in to the needs of person B, person A is considered cooperative. If person A assumes a my-way-or-the-highway approach, he or she is considered uncooperative. From these two dimensions, we can devise a way to manage conflict based on the situation. Just as situational leadership is based on task and relationship behavior, conflict management is situational and is based on assertive and cooperative behavior. With this in mind, let's look at the five styles used to manage conflict. Competing or forcing. This style attempts to overwhelm an opponent with formal authority, threats, or the use of power. Its underlying features are being highly assertive and uncooperative. Collaborating. The collaborating style involves an attempt to satisfy the concerns of both sides through honest discussion. Creative approaches to conflict reduction, such as sharing resources, may actually lead to both parties being materially better off. For this style to be successful, trust and openness are required of all participants. This style is high in assertive behavior and high in cooperation and seeks a win position for both groups. Accommodating. The accommodating style combines low assertiveness and high cooperation. At the simplest level, this style may merely involve giving in to another person's wishes. Avoiding. The combination of low assertiveness and low cooperation leads to an avoiding style. The person implies that he or she will appear to be neutral, and it may not always be possible to adopt a truly neutral position but a manager may nonetheless prefer to avoid the situation. Although a manager who avoids difficult issues is likely to be resented by his or her airmen, this strategy may be effective under certain circumstances. For example, a manager may initially stay out of a disagreement to avoid escalating the conflict during a particular phase of development. Later, when he or she judges the time is right, the manager may take a more active role in finding a productive solution. Experienced managers recognize that action is not always necessary because some problems dissipate over time or are resolved by other organizational processes. For example, an intense conflict between two airmen may seem to require intervention by their manager. If the manager knows that one of the individuals will soon be transferred to another department or promoted to another position, 
ignoring the situation and letting the impending changes resolve the difficulty may be the best solution. Compromising This style involves intermediate degrees of assertiveness and cooperation to partially satisfy both parties' desires and achieve a middle ground. To successfully compromise, both parties must be willing to give up something. Compromising is common during labor and management disputes. Applying conflict management style When deciding which style of conflict management to use, consider a few additional factors. First, consider who you are dealing with. When dealing with a supervisor or a peer, the competing style of conflict management may not be applicable. Also, doubtful any of us could force our commander in a conflict situation. On the other hand, competing may work for a subordinate. You have the legitimate power to enforce a policy. So, knowing who is important in deciding the style you can use. Another factor is determining how critical the issue is, also known as the stakes. If the issue is critical, you may wish to use the avoiding style at first to carefully consider the options or gather more data. However, because the issue is critical, you cannot avoid it for long. Sooner or later, you will have to confront the issue. Also, if the situation is critical and you know you are right, you may need to use the competing style to force your position. Conversely, if the issue is trivial, you could avoid it or even accommodate the other party. Remember to always consider the stakes in the issue. The final factor is the situation itself. In an emergency, the competing style might be necessary because there simply is not enough time to collaborate or compromise. You also cannot avoid an emergency. However, if time is not an issue and the parties are willing to discuss the matter, collaboration may be the best way to deal with the conflict situation because it works best for everyone. Although people may consider some styles of conflict management more effective, for example, collaborating versus avoiding, all of the conflict management styles are useful depending on who, the stakes, and the situation. Using these five styles allows us to successfully manage conflict, reduce disorder and chaos, and facilitate creativity and innovative problem-solving. Being a conflict management specialist is just another one of the many responsibilities of managers. Section 21E. Problem-Solving. Overview. The use of Continuous Process Improvement, CPI, increases operational capabilities while reducing associated costs by applying proven methodologies to all processes associated with fulfilling the Air Force mission. Continuous process improvement is a comprehensive philosophy of operations built around the concepts that there are always ways a process can be improved to better meet mission-slash-customer requirements. Organizations must constantly strive to make those improvements based on performance metrics that align to strategic objectives. And efficiencies should be replicated to the extent practical. Continuous process improvement is a hallmark of highly successful organizations and a major graded area in Air Force Inspection System. AFI 90-201 Air Force Inspection System and a Commander Responsibility in AFI 1-2 Commander's Responsibilities. Continuous Process Improvement Uses Structured Problem Solving The core of Air Force Process Improvement is the Practical Problem Solving Method. 
The practical problem-solving method is a standardized and structured approach to problem-solving utilized in commercial industry and adopted by the Air Force. The practical problem-solving method is an eight-step process used to clarify problems, identify root causes, and develop appropriate countermeasures to achieve change. Typically, the practical problem-solving method is illustrated using the A3 format, identifying improvement opportunities. Oftentimes, the success of an organization relies on its ability to identify opportunities for process improvement. Much like industry partners, the Air Force must strive for continuous process improvement. Customer demand, processing, budgeting, and workforce needs are all factors organizations have to effectively manage to survive. The Air Force contends with the same issues as global operations continue. Readiness, training, and modernization have to be managed with less monetary freedom. The application of practical problem-solving method provides a methodical approach to identifying opportunities for improvements through all process within the Air Force. Consistently applied, the practical problem-solving method provides an excellent tool to make data-driven decisions with regards to management, process change, and the sharing of best practices. Strategic Alignment Strategic alignment provides the framework to ensure resources and actions of subordinate levels align to and achieve the strategy, mission, vision, priorities, and objectives of the enterprise. The strategic plan identifies the current mission, vision for the future, and prioritizes objectives to get from the current state to the future vision. The strategic plan also communicates commander's intent and assigns responsibility. Imperative is that all improvement efforts align with the organization's efforts to accomplish the overall strategic plan's objectives. AFI 1-2, Commander's Responsibilities, requires commanders to strive for strategic alignment within their organization. Practical Problem-Solving Method The Practical Problem-Solving Method, Table 21.1, is intended to be printed on an 11 by 17 piece of paper, A3 size, and completed in pencil. An A3 provides a concise, single-page document for problem identification and validation designed to help organizations build consensus. Its simple design helps the user apply a structured, scientific approach while allowing it to be modified and changed quickly for ease of use. Descriptions of the practical problem-solving method steps follow. Step 1. Clarify and validate the problem. The critical first step to effective problem-solving is to clearly understand the problem. A problem-solving effort that begins with, we all know what the problem is, so just get it fixed now, sets us up for failure before we begin. This fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants approach leads to several errors. First, because the obvious solution is often based purely on the experience level of the problem-solver, which misdiagnose the underlying problem. Secondly, this mindset is closed to the possibility of innovative solutions which are better suited to solving the real problem. A well-defined problem statement uses data to identify where the problem is occurring and impact of the problem and compares performance against a standard with scope and direction. The statement does not make assumptions of a root cause, solution, and or countermeasure and includes visual tools to depict the current state. 
the who, what, when, where, and significance of the problem statement should be validated by data. This is done by collecting and analyzing data to both validate the existence and magnitude of the problem. If data does not exist, the effort should be paused to collect and analyze the needed data before moving forward. Tools to consider for step one are strategic alignment, voice of the customer, supplier, input, process, output, customer diagram, and value stream map. Step two, break down problem and identify performance gaps. Once the problem has been clearly identified and answers the who, what, when, and where of the problem statement, efforts are made to further analyze the data in comparison to the voice of the customer. The voice of the customer gives the standard to measure from. The delta between the current state, otherwise known as the voice of the process, and voice of the customer will highlight opportunities for improvements, also called the performance gap. Often, the more thorough the evaluation of a problem in this step, the more effective and concise the practical problem-solving method will be. A critical step in assessing a problem is gathering and reviewing data on the process. Understanding what appropriate data is required and the ability to interpret that data is paramount to performance gap analysis. Step 2 effectively frames and supports the problem in Step 1 using data. Tools to consider for Step 2 are GoNC and metrics that help better define the gap between the voice of the customer and voice of the process. Step 3. Set improvement targets. Air Force leaders establish a vision of what an organization will strive to become, the ideal state. In Step 3, process owners and or project sponsors set improvement targets based on voice of the customer and strategic goals and objectives. Targets help define the required performance levels to achieve the vision. Targets should be challenging but achievable and have certain characteristics, specific, measurable, attainable, results-focused, and time-bound, smart. The project should obtain a vector check upon completion to ensure strategic alignment with the project champion. Tools to consider for Step 3 are Ideal State Map, SMART Objectives, Setting Goals. SMART Objectives are Specific Having desirable outputs based on subject matter expert knowledge and experience applicable to the process improvement activity. Specific targets should answer who is involved, what is to accomplish, where it is to be done, when it is to be done, time frame, which, identify requirements and constraints, and why, specific reasons, purpose, or benefits of accomplishing the goal. Measurable. Include time frames and data obtainable from specific sources. Establish criteria for measuring progress toward the attainment of each goal. To determine if your goal is measurable, ask questions such as, how much? How many? How will I know when it is accomplished? Attainable. Resources are available. May have some risk, but success is possible. Results focused. The mission, vision, and goals are linked and meaningful to the user. Time bound. Provide date for completion. Targeted dates provide measurable accountability. Step 4. Determine root cause. Air Force leaders often find themselves addressing problems which have been solved many times because previous problem-solving efforts were directed at symptoms of a problem rather than the root cause of the problem. 
If an aircraft is constantly breaking down and cannot perform its mission, should the goal be to reduce aircraft usage, improve repair cycle time, improve the quality of replacement parts, improve the aircraft design, or improve the aircraft design process? Each step becomes increasingly difficult to evaluate, but each step also has a greater impact in the elimination of the problem. Root cause analysis is a trade-off between digging as deeply as possible and finding the deepest points still within the team's sphere of influence. The correct root cause should be validated by using the same data used to define the problem in Step 1. Tools to consider for Step 4 are 5 whys, brainstorming, Pareto chart, affinity program, fishbone diagram, and control charts. Step 5. Develop countermeasures. Step 5 is the process changes that directly corrects, influences, affects each of your root causes are developed. Air Force leaders should follow important guidelines to ensure the greatest likelihood of success. A key principle to remember is that the impact of a solution is a combination of the quality of the solution and the acceptance of the solution by the people who must implement it. The relationship is similar to the following formula. Quality of the solution times acceptance equals impact. Also, when developing countermeasures, strive for process improvement change that is sustainable and repeatable. Address potential root causes with countermeasures which conform to lean principles and are the most practical and effective. Keep it simple. Validate countermeasures will close performance gaps when implemented. Countermeasures should move the organization closer to the ideal state and support strategic plans. Also recommended is to build consensus, when possible and appropriate, with all stakeholders involved. Judiciously involving stakeholders in the development of countermeasures sponsors ownership of the solution and its success. At the end of this step, obtain a vector check from the champion to ensure strategic alignment. The champion approves the countermeasures prior to implementation. Tools to consider for Step 5 are Sort, Straighten, Shine, Standardize, Sustain, Brainstorming, Multi-Voting, Possible, Implement, Challenge, Kill Chart, Error-Proofing, Standard Work, Cell or Flow Design, and Future State Map. Step 6. See Countermeasures Through Step 6 is seeing countermeasures through execution and tracking of detailed implementation plans for each countermeasure approved in Block 5 of the Practical Problem-Solving Method. The champion should be updated regularly on all tasks' status until countermeasures have been implemented or deemed unnecessary as target state has been met. Devoting time and resources towards developing an action plan without action should be considered waste. Tools to consider for Step 6 are Sort, Straighten, Shine, standardize, sustain. Visual management. Standard work, cell or flow design, variation reduction, error proofing, quick changeover, and the rapid improvement event. Step 7. Confirm results and process. Step 7 compares the results of implemented countermeasures to the identified performance gaps and improvement targets. Verify the improved process is sustainable and repeatable. Results are measured by data and analyzed to confirm the project's intent. Illustrate confirmed results with appropriate data tool or tools, which link back to performance gap or gaps in Step 2 and improvement target or targets in Step 3. 
tools to consider during Step 7 are key performance indicators or metrics and strategic alignment. Processes should be monitored for performance relative to the baseline developed in Steps 1 and 2, performance relative to SMART targets established in Step 3, performance relative to the solution implementation. If you are not meeting targets, you may need to return to Step 4. Incorrect root cause determination is the most common mistake made during continuous process improvement efforts. Step 8. Standardize successful processes. Step 8 is the most commonly skipped and undercompleted step of the entire practical problem-solving method. Some people are tempted to take newfound knowledge and skills and immediately move on to the next improvement initiative, skipping the effort to ensure the results are codified. This step is defined by answers to three questions. What is needed to standardize the improvements? This could be Airman Powered by Innovation, API, Program Input, Changes to Technical Orders, Air Force Instructions, Operating Instructions, Equipment Materiel, or Using a Different Vendor or Supplier. How should improvements and lessons learned be communicated? This could be accomplished through input into Air Force CPI Portal, Key Meetings, Air Force Publications, Public Affairs, Chain of Command, or SharePoint Sites. Leaders should ensure the Wing Process Manager is aware of the success. Were other opportunities or problems identified by the problem-solving model? This project may have identified additional problem-solving opportunities. Effective problem-solving should follow the practical problem-solving method. Attempting to skip, reorder, or shortcut steps invariably leads to suboptimal solutions or failure. Following the practical problem-solving method ensures actions lead to the desired results with minimal waste. It also ensures the results are aligned with the needs of the organization. Properly applied, the practical problem-solving method is aligned to the organization's purpose and activities and increases Air Force combat effectiveness. Methodologies Air Force CPI incorporates aspects of four major CPI methodologies. A practical problem-solving method solution may simultaneously draw from more than one of the CPI methods. Lean a methodology focused on workflow, customer value, and eliminating process waste. Unique from traditional process improvement strategies in that its primary focus is on eliminating non-value-added activities. Six Sigma. A rigorous, data-driven methodology for process improvement focused on minimizing waste through identifying, controlling, and reducing process variation. Business Process Reengineering. A comprehensive process requiring a change in the fundamental way business processes are performed. Business process reengineering identifies unnecessary activities and eliminates them wherever possible. Theory of constraints. A systematic approach to optimize resource utilization by identifying, exploiting, subordinating, elevating, and reassessing constraints, bottlenecks, in the process. Practical problem-solving method level of effort. Different levels of effort are required to accomplish this method initiative. Just do it. Also called point improvement, this involves one person or a small team and can be accomplished in less than a day. Examples could be using torque wrenches instead of adjustable wrenches or routing paperwork via email instead of the post office or paper distribution channels. Rapid improvement event. 
A rapid improvement event consists of a small team of individuals, usually subject matter experts, and can be accomplished in less than a week, and is designed to develop and implement countermeasures after appropriate project preparations have been made. Examples could be improving aircraft servicing cycle times or improving first-time pass yields on task management tool taskers. Improvement Project This setting requires a large team and is conducted over a longer period of time. Examples might be shortening aircraft annual overhaul cycle time or writing software to track annual overhauls. Summary Practical problem-solving method is a structured method to CPI. It is flexible enough to be effective at any level, from headquarters Air Force to the individual airmen. This single piece of paper approach provides a standardized template for airmen to solve problems and perform process improvement initiatives. If you have questions on the usage of practical problem-solving method or want to get more training related to CPI philosophies, please contact your local manpower office for training at your location. Section 21F. Project Management. Introduction. Project management? I'm not in the plans and programs business, so why should I worry about managing a project? These are questions which may be on your mind right now. If so, you may be right, for now. However, you have the likelihood of taking positions in the future which will or do involve the sound management of a multitude of resources. Even if you are not involved in the management of a long-term project involving millions of dollars worth of resources, the benefits of obtaining knowledge of project management principles and their application will make you a better planner and manager. In addition, these same skills will easily blend with your other management skills to improve your effectiveness as a manager and a leader. Scores of books have been written on the topic of project management, and this short reading cannot make you fully knowledgeable of all aspects of project management. However, this reading will familiarize you with some of project management's essential terminology and illustrate practical uses of project management principles. Project management cannot be understood unless you know a little bit about the project management language. Project Management Project management uses a unique array of terminology to communicate its principles and use. The first term we should probably clear up right away is the term project management. According to Hersey and Blanchard in their book Management of Organizational Behavior, management is defined as the process of working with and through individuals and groups and other resources to accomplish organizational goals. Hersey and Blanchard, 5. In their book, Successful Project Managers, Jeffrey K. Pinto and O.P. Carbanda define projects as a combination of human and non-human resources pulled together in a temporary organization to achieve a specified purpose. Pinto and Carbanda, 13. Although there are many definitions to choose from, for the purpose of this reading, we'll use Pinto and Carbanda's definition of project management. The process of leading, coordinating, planning and controlling a diverse and complex set of processes and people in the pursuit of achieving project objectives. Pinto and Carbanda, 17. With this definition in mind, it may be worthy to examine what project management is not. A project is not a program. Programs are ongoing. A project, by definition, is something temporary. Although temporary could be in terms of years, a project is unlike a program. 
You are involved with many programs in your work centers and programs are ongoing. A project has a single objective which has some time frame attached to it. Armed with project management's basic definition, we can now expand on project management's other terms. Some of the terminology used in project management is contained in the basic steps of project management. These steps are depicted in Figure 21.1 and appear in the book Fundamentals of Project Management by James P. Lewis. Lewis, 7. Define the project objective. Identify the problem or objective to be solved or the improvement to be achieved by the project. What client need is being satisfied by the project? Develop solution options. How many ways might you go about solving the problem? Of the available alternatives, which do you think will best solve the problem? Some decision analysis techniques will come into play here. Plan the project. Planning is nothing more than answering questions, what must be done, by whom, for how much, how, when, and so on. Execute the plan. Sometimes people go to great length and effort to put together a plan, but then fail to follow it. Follow your plan. Monitor and control progress. The project manager must monitor and control by being present and making appropriate decisions. This is where you'll determine whether or not the plan was sound and can make adjustments as necessary. Close the project. Once the objective has been achieved, the project is finished, but there is still a final step that should be taken. It's time for lessons learned, what went well, what didn't, and what should be improved. Lewis 7. Ultimately, the goal is to achieve the objective of the project in the most logical, sensible manner. By following these steps, you will succeed. Sound simple? We all know there is more to it than just knowing the steps. Once a realization of the steps of project management is attained, accomplishing these steps requires understanding of some more terminology. Before you can complete step one of project management, you have to ensure the problem or improvement opportunity is clearly defined by the project objective. You might say that an objective is simply a goal, but in reality, when it comes to project management, an objective has to be more specific than a typical broad goal. According to Marion E. Haynes in her book, Project Management from Idea to Implementation, good objectives are SMART. SMART is an acronym which stands for Specific, Measurable, Action-Oriented, Realistic, and Time-Limited. Specific because a good objective says exactly what you want it to say. Measurable because you want to be able to determine whether you have met the objective. Action-oriented by using statements that have action-tense verbs and are complete sentences. In other words, make the objective active voice, not passive voice. Realistic because good objectives must be attainable, yet should present a challenge. Time-limited because a specific time should be set by which to achieve the objective. Haynes, 16. For example, Accomplish the renovation of the office area would be an example of a goal you wish to achieve. A smart objective for such a goal might be renovate the office area by June 30th, 2000X at a cost not to exceed $12,000. By specifying the objective of the project, you can now determine the constraints you have to operate under. Constraints are numerous for all activities we endeavor, but constraint consideration is crucial for project management. According to Jeff Rice in his book, Project Management Demystified, 
quality, time, and cost are the main constraints realized in project management. Quality refers to being in accordance with the requirements, the specifications. Time refers to the amount of time you have to complete the project. Cost, of course, refers to your resource constraints to include the four M's necessary to complete the project, money, manpower, machinery, and materials. One of these constraints, quality, time, and cost, will be your driver for the project. Rice, 39. To understand the meaning of driver, let's examine some of National Aeronautics and Space Administration's projects. In the 1960s, a manned vehicle called Sputnik broke through the Earth's atmosphere and the space race began. In an effort to catch up, time became a driver for National Aeronautics and Space Administration's project to launch a man into space. The amount of money spent, or the quality of the materials, although important, did not drive the project. However, during the 1980s, the explosion of the Challenger caused National Aeronautics and Space Administration to change drivers. Now, quality became the driver for future projects. The driver for your project will have an impact on the other two constraints affecting your project. Ensure you take this into consideration when making decisions about your project's objective. If time is the driver, the T of your SMART objective needs to be reflective of that driving influence. If quality is your driver, the S of your SMART objective needs to be predominant. How will quality being your driver affect the other constraints? Quality increases the amount of time taken and increases the expense of materials. You must always remain cognizant of the impact one constraint has on another and adjust the management of your project accordingly. Ultimately, your driver and affected constraints will have an impact on the solutions you develop. As the project manager, it is incumbent upon you to provide the leadership and use good team-building techniques to establish a sound project objective and generate the solution options necessary to achieve those objectives. Once these steps have been completed, it will then be time to embark upon the most important and time-consuming aspect of project management, planning. As indicated earlier, planning the project involves answering several questions. The first of those questions is, what must be done? The answer is contained in the objective of the project, but more specifics are needed. Haynes states that the starting place for answering the question of what must be done is by using a work breakdown structure. A work breakdown structure is a technique based on dividing a project into subunits or work packages. Since all the elements required to complete the project are identified in the work breakdown structure, the chances of neglecting or overlooking an essential step are minimized. A work breakdown structure is typically constructed with two or three levels of detail, although more levels are quite common depending on the complexity of the project. Haynes 25. To illustrate using an elementary example, figure 21.2 depicts a work breakdown structure for a typical yard project. Granted, a work breakdown structure would not usually be constructed for such a project, but to illustrate the concept, it is best to use something very simple to start with. Graphically, you can quickly ascertain the necessary tasks to complete the project. Such a structure for your project will permit you, and others who see the work breakdown structure, to readily identify what needs to be done, spot omissions which might later affect the outcome of the project, and make suggestions for improving and expanding the work breakdown structure. How much is too much detail? 
According to Lewis, the general guideline is that you stop breaking down the work when you reach a point at which you can estimate to the desired degree of accuracy, or at which the work will take an amount of time equal to the smallest units you want to schedule. Lewis, 41. Taking figure 21.2's work breakdown structure as an example, although the trim hedge element of the project is an element that needs to be included as part of the work breakdown structure, it is not necessary to further indicate whether the hedge should be squared or rounded, done from left to right or top to bottom, etc. The amount of breakdown is an element the project manager and the project team must decide upon. Once the work breakdown structure has been tweaked and finalized, the next step is task analysis. Like the work breakdown structure, the amount of detail needed for the task analysis depends on the task involved and the desires of the project manager and project team. The more complex the project, the greater the importance of detailed task analysis. Figure 21.3 depicts a typical task analysis and details considered using our elementary example task pertaining to the yard project. As you can see from the example, a wealth of information is contained about the task which is not depicted in the work breakdown structure to include task milestones, more specific information of how the milestones can be measured, an identification of dependent tasks, budgetary concerns, task assignments, and reporting requirements. As the project manager, you can delegate the task analysis for each task to the appropriate person. Once they are compiled, you can make final decisions on task assignments and budgetary concerns. The task analysis is what provides the crucial information for determining how the tasks of the project interrelate. For example, in the case of the yard project, the tasks associated with preparing the equipment must be completed prior to any of the other tasks being accomplished. There is no sense in accomplishing cleanup if you haven't done any of the work yet. Although this example may seem to be common sense, when larger projects are in the planning stage, it is imperative the proper sequencing of tasks occurs prior to beginning a project to ensure the efficiency of the project. You wouldn't want carpet installed in your home prior to painting the ceiling and the walls, right? Once a task analysis has been performed on all tasks associated with the project, the next phase of project management, scheduling, must be conducted. The advent of computer software has made scheduling tasks for projects much easier than it used to be. According to Lewis, until around 1958, the only tool for scheduling projects was the bar charts. Lewis, 50. Figure 21.4 below depicts a simple bar chart constructed from a word processing software package using a table. As you can see, the time taken to complete a task is depicted graphically as one of the dark-colored bars in five-minute increments. Lewis indicates that prior to the advent of project management software, similar charts were used. Charts, such as the one depicted in Figure 21.4 above, were called Gantt charts, named after Henry Gantt, the developer of this notational system. Until the advent of computer software packages, Gantt charts had one serious drawback. Determining the impact of a slip of one task on the rest of the project was very difficult. To overcome this problem, two methods of scheduling were developed in the late 1950s and early 1960s that used arrow diagrams to capture the sequential and parallel relationships among project activities. One method was called Critical Path Method, developed by DuPont. 
The other, performance evaluation and review technique, was developed by the Navy and the Booz, Allen, and Hamilton Consulting Group. The major difference between the two methods is the ability performance evaluation and review technique has to calculate the probability that an activity will be completed by a certain time, whereas critical path method does not. Lewis 51 It is important to point out that critical path method is a method of scheduling used when the time for completing each task of the project is well known, whereas performance evaluation and review technique is used when task durations within a project, usually a large project, are unknown or difficult to predict. For example, in the case of the yard project, if you had performed the various tasks before, you would be able to accurately estimate the amount of time it would take to complete the tasks based upon your own personal experience. Therefore, critical path method would be a simpler method for scheduling. However, in the case of a large project where estimates are not based upon personal experience, performance evaluation and review technique might be a more appropriate method for scheduling. According to Haynes, a way to deal with the lack of precision in estimating time is to use a commonly accepted formula for the task. The estimate is derived in the following way, figure 21.5. Once a time duration is determined for each subunit of the project, the next step is to determine the earliest and latest starting times for each subunit, Haynes 31. Both critical path method and performance evaluation and review technique methods are used for what is termed network analysis. According to Rice, network analysis is simply breaking down any project into activities or tasks and then deciding how long each task will take and how each of these activities relate to one another. From this data, you calculate the timing of each element and predict which activities or tasks are vital to the success of the project. Rice, 46. The analysis, a simple graphical expansion of the task analysis, is depicted using bar charts, critical path method, performance evaluation, and review technique, or a combination of the three. For critical path method and performance evaluation and review technique, a common convention used is called activity on arrow or precedence. For the purpose of this reading, we will refer to the technique as strictly precedence. To better understand this technique, the following series of diagrams and accompanying explanation is provided. In figure 21.6 below, the precedence, or task, to be accomplished, is indicated on the line between the two circles. According to Rice, the words written above the line describe the task and are known as the task description. This task or activity, precedence, takes a certain period of time. We call the circles events or nodes, and they illustrate the completion or beginning of events. Rice goes on to say that the circles can also be squares, diamonds, or a variety of other symbols, depending on what technique is being employed. Rice, 49. To expand this concept a little, let's take a look at a slightly more involved example. In figure 21.7 below, we see an example of how the precedence of open garage door must occur before the next two separate events can begin or reach completion. In other words, for event 4 to take place, the beginning of the precedence is get the car out and get the bike out, the prior precedence open garage door must take place. When a task must be completed before other tasks can begin, that task is said to be a dependency task, or predecessor task.
According to Rice, the completion of events like 5 and 6, get the bike out and get the car out, are dependent upon the task, open garage door, and therefore follow open garage door. These succeeding tasks are independent of each other in the diagram. In other words, they can be accomplished independently of each other, provided the same person is not accomplishing both tasks. Rice, 50. Tasks that are independent of each other can be performed simultaneously if adequate resources are available. According to Rice, we can also estimate the amount of time which we think each task will take, and this amount of time we call the duration of the task. When a network diagram is drawn containing nodes connected by tasks labeled with durations, the time each task should happen can be calculated by adding up the durations of the various routes contained within a network. Normally, one of these routes will take longer than the other routes. The longest route is referred to as the critical path. The completions of the tasks along the critical path are vital to the success of the project, for if any one of those tasks becomes delayed for some reason, the entire project will also be delayed. For example, figure 21.8 illustrates a network diagram with multiple routes and activity arrows labeled with task completion times. The critical path is indicated in bold A, C, E, G, I along the route with the longest total completion times. If the tasks between A and C, C and E, E and G, or G and I should take longer than the time indicated, the total length of time for the entire project will be delayed. Hence, this critical path is vital to task completion, so the tasks along this path should receive the most attention during the length of the project. As indicated earlier by Rice, squares can be used to represent these events or nodes. Performance evaluation and review technique make use of squares to illustrate network analysis. Rice 49 in figure 21.9 below, in the network diagram of figure 21.8, is formatted in performance evaluation and review technique. The critical path is identified by the bold-faced box borders and the arrows that lead into and out of them. As you can see from the upper left box labeled XYZ project, the project is to take 22 days, assuming the critical path durations do not change task 1.1 of 5 days, plus task 1.3 of 5 days, plus task 1.6 of 7 days, plus task 1.9 of 4 days, plus project review of 1 day equals 22 days. Whether you choose network diagramming like that depicted in figures 21.7 and 21.8 or a Gantt chart is insignificant. The important thing to remember is that the tool used should be simple to read and user-friendly for your project. For the purpose of the remainder of this reading, we will use a Gantt chart to graphically depict further project discussions. Most project management software packages make use of Gantt charts, but even if you do not have access to project management software, Gantt charts can be easily constructed manually in most word processing and spreadsheet programs. Figure 21.10 below is a Gantt chart from a popular software package that depicts the information displayed previously in figures 21.8 and 21.9.
The critical path in figure 21.10 is identified by those tasks whose task names are larger, bold-faced, and underlined in the column labeled task name. As indicated earlier, the critical path is vital to task completion, so the tasks along this path should receive the most attention during the length of the project. Reese indicates that activities off the critical path have some freedom of movement without affecting the overall project. These tasks are said to have float or slack. The amount of float is the amount of time the activity can be delayed without affecting the project overall. Critical tasks have no float and may become critical when their float is consumed by the passage of time. There are two types of float, free float and total float. Total float is what we have been talking about thus far. The amount of time a task can be delayed without affecting the project's end date. Rice, 52. Note, in the following examples, the Gantt chart depicted is for a work schedule of Monday through Friday, with weekends being non-duty days. For example, in figure 21.10 below, task 1.2 has two days of total float. Since it is not along the critical path, if it was to be delayed by two days, it would still not cause task 1.6 to be delayed from occurring, thus its delay would not affect the critical path or the project. Free float is the amount of time a task can be delayed without affecting any tasks at all. Task 1.2 causes the delay of task 1.4, therefore it has no free float, because a delay of this task affects another task. However, task 1.4 has free float, for if it was delayed by as much as two days, its delay would not have any effect on the accomplishment of another task. Why? Because task 1.3 must be accomplished before tasks 1.5, 1.6, and 1.7 can occur. Since task 1.3 is 5 days and 1.4 is 3 days, if 1.4 was to start 2 days late and still finish in 3 days, it would not hold up the tasks which are also waiting on the completion of task 1.3. That extra 2 days is called task 1.4's free float. Float, or slack, is a concept which is very beneficial to a project manager. For example, suppose task 1.3, a critical task, was accomplished by a team of folks. If a couple of team members were unable to perform for some reason, emergency leave, hospitalization, etc., task 1.4 could be delayed and personnel from the team accomplishing that task could be used for task 1.3. Another possibility might be that computers used for accomplishment of task 1.3 have failed and task 1.4 could be delayed to permit the computer resources to be used for task 1.3. Knowledge of task duration, resources to accomplish the task, and float available for tasks can enable a project manager to make sound decisions to keep the project on schedule or to even shorten the time required to complete the project. There is a multitude of information available on project management. We have attempted to introduce you to some of the terminology, expound on some project management principles, and illustrate practical uses of project management principles. Remember, project management and program management are not the same thing. Unlike a program, a project is temporary, not ongoing. Project management is the process of leading and managing processes and people in the pursuit of achieving project objectives. The steps of project management include defining the problem, developing solution options, planning the project, 
executing the plan, monitoring and controlling progress, and closing the project. Project objectives should be smart, specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and time-limited. For project management, the primary constraints are quality, time, and cost. Of these three constraints, one of them will likely be the driver for a project. The driver of a project will have an impact on the other constraints affecting the project. As a project manager, you must remain constantly aware of the driver and how it impacts the other constraints of the project. With the constraints in mind, it is imperative for the project manager to provide sound leadership and management to develop the solution options necessary to achieve the project objective. Once options are developed, the most important and time-consuming aspect of project management must occur, planning the project. Planning a project involves activities that answer the questions who, what, when, where, and how. Techniques of special importance to use during planning are a work breakdown schedule, task analysis, and scheduling. Scheduling is accomplished in a number of ways to include Gantt charts, critical path method, and performance evaluation and review technique. Gantt, critical path method, and performance evaluation and review technique are methods used for network analysis. Critical path method and performance evaluation and review technique use a common convention called activity on arrow or precedence. Regardless of the method used, the route contained in the diagram depicting the longest duration is referred to as the critical path. The completion of the tasks along a critical path is vital to the success of the project, and failure of any one of those tasks to be completed on time results in a delay to project completion. The activities of some tasks off the critical path have some freedom of movement without affecting the overall project. These tasks are said to have float or slack. The two types of float are total float and free float. Total float is the amount of time a task can be delayed without affecting the project's end. Conclusion Organizational management is the process of organizing, planning, leading, and controlling resources within an entity with the overall aim of achieving its objectives. Organizational management provides leaders the ability to make decisions and resolve issues in order to be both effective and beneficial. This chapter provided valuable information leaders need to effectively manage their organizations. This chapter covered organizational design, managing organizational change, conflict, problem-solving, and project management.